Hello and welcome to the Uncapped Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Sands. My co-host this week is Senior News Post reporter, Danielle Gaines. Hello. We have a special guest this week, an attorney for... Miles and Stockbridge. Miles, I was going to say it backwards, <laughs> so I'm glad you... Miles and Stockbridge, Henry Abramson. Correct. But you prefer to go by Hank, correct? That's right. Mm-hmm. And to help us discuss all these legal issues uh, regarding the startup of a brewery, intellectual property, JT Smith has agreed to come in and help out. JT has a long career in craft beer. He started out with Flying Dog, then he... Uh, was the executive director for BAM for how long? A uh, better part of three and a half years. Okay, and and also has a law degree. So once again, I find myself the least intelligent person in the room. So <laughs> hopefully the, these three will pick up my slack. <laughs> and we, we were chatting a little bit beforehand, and Danielle had some great questions that she'll hopefully repeat for <laughs> Hank. Um, one, uh, Let's just how how did you how did you find yourself being so involved with craft beer? About a year ago, um, I noticed because uh, craft beer is growing so quickly in Maryland, I started seeing a lot of news stories popping up. Not only with respect to the startup of the businesses, uh, which I'm interested in, but also all of the trademark infringement that was going on with respect to the the, the brewery brands and the brands involved with each of the beers. Um, I'm a business and intellectual property attorney. So what I do in large part is I help businesses start up, form their businesses, maintain their entities, a lot of the contract work that, you know, they, they see as they operate their business and then protecting their intellectual property. So I thought this was a natural segue um, for what I do into this industry. And it's something that I see the, um, the, you know, the craft breweries, you know, really need some of this advice as they continue to grow. Now, in regards to intellectual property, there's bit like mainly two forms, like copyright and trademark. Could you explain the d- difference to this? Because I, th- I feel like that is something often that people will throw those two terms around when they they aren't actually referring to the right thing. There yeah. will be a test afterwards. As well, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so pay Take attention. Um, I've actually Danielle's doing that for me. She's got the paper. <laughs> I've actually taught you know whole semesters on this subject, so I'll try to uh, you know condense. touch yeah condense everything <laughs> that you could cover in a semester into about thirty seconds. There are several types of intellectual property. You mentioned trademarks and copyright. There's also patent and um, trade secret. And uh, trademark, copyright, and trade seeker are known as soft IP. Patent is known as hard IP. So I work mostly with soft IP. I don't really do much patent work. Trademarks are, um, you know, dealing with the logo, the word, symbol, brand identifying images um, or identifiers uh, used in connection with the sale of a good or service. Um, So it's specifically as used in connection with the sale of your product or the service that you're offering. Whereas copyright is really protecting artistic um, pieces, things like sculptures or movies or uh, this podcast, for example, (laughs) web content. And so you can find in coming up with a protection um, for a business that if they have a sufficiently complex logo or something, you can actually protect it both with trademark and copyright, which can be highly effective because copyright goes into some areas, especially internationally, where trademark does not go. It usually stops at a country's borders. 
So I have uh, helped clients, you know, kind of put together a whole intellectual property protection plan that incorporates many of these different types of IP and, and really protects them comprehensively. So could your beer recipe be a trade secret or would it have to be like you created a new way to brew and that's what could be a trade secret? The actual recipe could probably either be patent or trade secret. But just like, you know, the Coke recipe or the KFC recipe, oftentimes you don't want to patent that because it only lasts for about 20 years. And then your secret formula, the secret sauce is out in the public to see. So usually what you want to do is protect that with trade secret, which doesn't really require a registration like a trademark or copyright would. So in that sense, it's a little less expensive in terms of registration and maintenance. But the maintenance is uh, tougher to keep up because what you have to do is you have to make sure that recipe actually stays a secret. So everything's on a need-to-know basis only. Only certain people, high-ranking people in the company get to know that secret. Um, everything is protected through non-disclosure agreements if you're dealing with contractors, vendors, suppliers, things like that. And you have to come up with a policy and a plan to, to regulate uh, that secrecy. So, Do they have to document who has had access to that knowledge too, or does it not go that far? You don't necessarily have to document that, but you have to be very careful about who gets to see what. And um, I may be mistaken, but my understanding is like Coke, you know, they'll actually send different parts of their recipe to be manufactured in different places. So no one on the outside is actually seeing the whole thing to come together. So these are the, the you know, the extent of which you have to um, do these things to keep, keep the secret going. Is that something you've seen much in the beer industry though? It, like I'd... That's not something I've ever read about where one brewery has sued another brewery because they've come out with a beer that tastes exactly like what they have. I haven't seen it yet. Um, that doesn't mean it's, it's not happening. Um, sometimes in the brewing industry, you know, it's a very tight-knit industry. Um, so sometimes out of friendships and things like that, you could... And, you know, there's a lot of collaboration anyway and helping each other out, which is, I think, really a, a good part of the industry. It's everyone's helping each other grow. But at the same time, you do have to be very careful that if you have a, a certain recipe that you know a lot of people like, that you uh, sufficiently protect it. So if you haven't like actually registered as a trade secret and gone through the legal, for uh, not formalities, but the that process mm -hmm. um so say i mean it happens all the time a brewer is a head brewer here leaves to go start his own or is a the head brewer at another brewery at the next place if he goes someplace and basically makes almost the exact same beer it's one of their flagship beers like brewery a goes to brewery b starts making something pretty much the exact same thing if they haven't gone through any of the process of protecting it. Is there is there still legal recourse in that situation, or is it's it's gets hairy? Um, but what you want to do is, depending on how you've engaged that person, whether they're an employee or an independent contractor, you want to make sure either that employment agreement or the independent contractor agreement has certain language in it where it says what you've created while working for us or while engaged by us is either you know, work made for hire if it qualifies. If it doesn't qualify as a work made for hire, there's an automatic and immediate assignment of rights that comes over to us. Um, and that recipe is automatically ours without necessarily having to do anything more. Um, and then that way, you know, you've locked up your IP 
And the trouble is, is that it's not just breweries. It's a lot of businesses, especially startup businesses, because they're so concerned with actually getting up and operating and, and making uh, revenue that, you know, they don't think about the nitty gritty provisions in these all these different agreements, or maybe they don't even have an agreement with their employees. And yeah, the HR aspect is kind of the... Exactly. They deal Drinking with that after they've been fun. bit. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And and sometimes, you know, if they've done really well, they'll have a potential purchaser come in who wants to buy the business and they come in and they say, Okay, tell us about your intellectual property. That's a, a valuable asset of yours. And they just look at them and say, you know, I haven't protected this sufficiently. I can't guarantee you that what you're buying uh is good and protected. So it, it gets to be a real problem. So you guys have had a group at your firm working on these craft brewing issues for about a year now, right? That's right. Um, what has the interest been from the industry? Um, we've seen a couple different things. One, I actually help out a lot of the service providers on the periphery of the industry as well. So not only the breweries, but I probably have ended, ended up representing as many service providers um, as I have actual breweries. The thing about the brewery business that, that I've noticed is that it's a very kind of um, exclusive group. It's a very tight-knit group. It's hard. Um, they trust each other and help each other. But, um, you know, it, it takes a little while as an outside service provider to earn that trust. Um, and also, you know, we were talking about before uh, the podcast began that um, – you know, budgets are limited. A lot of these are small startups. And so, you know, a lot of their budget on startup goes to buying this expensive equipment just so they can get their product out there and start earning some money because um, they have bills to pay. And so sometimes they don't think, either think about the legal protection or sometimes they can't afford the legal protection. It's not built into their budget. Um, and, and, you know, when you're creating that business plan, when you're just getting up and running, I think that's a, a really important, you know, it's easy for me to say as the attorney <laughs> who's getting paid, of course. <laughs> but but these issues um, quickly grow to, to potentially be issues that can take down a business if you don't address them properly. When you were with BAM, did you have a lot of your members coming to you with concerns in about the law it's something that well about the law in general <coughs> or yeah IP or just rights? you know yeah ip or just generally you know how do i protect myself when i'm starting this new business that's kind of risky i mean there's a lot of overhead cost in this industry sure so uh first and foremost we were uh, a member-based association uh still are um, and so the members uh from time to time we would do seminars uh, where i would share information and guidance on IP rights and uh, best practices to protect themselves. The Brewers Association, the uh, national version headquartered in Boulder, Colorado, has also done a wonderful job that during those years while I was at BAM, we were simultaneously working with one another to develop uh, kind of one sheets and easy one-stop shops for independent brewers, because I think to Hank's point, uh, it's a very capital-intensive process uh, opening up uh, what amounts to a value-added manufacturing facility. Mm-hmm. Uh, and kind of the last thing on the thought is uh, they just want to get the beer uh, able to be brewed and then brewed and dialing in their equipment and making sure that they're doing everything right there and selling that beer, be it across the counter or to a wholesaler or what have you. One of those final thoughts there at that point is, uh, and, and doesn't really even come across, is, well, how do I protect myself legally and am I doing everything I'm supposed to be doing? They want the license from the state of Maryland and, and the tax 
uh, information from the comptroller, and then they feel like they're free to go. So mm-hmm. uh, that's something that we as an association at that point um, were proactive in helping to educate our members. Uh, regarding the law in general, uh, absolutely, it was a giant focus um, of mine personally while being the executive director as well as the association at large. Uh, you know, when I uh, started at BAM, I was the first executive director. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a one-man army. And... Um, <laughs> The brewing environment in the state of Maryland was not what it is now, uh, and a lot of that was uh, due to the laws that we wrote, argued, negotiated, and passed. Um, and so that was a, a core focus of ours uh, for the years that I was there, uh, and, and need, needing so. And it was also a personal goal of mine uh, when I set out with a position to um, change the environment in the state of Maryland to make it more conducive uh, to allow these value-added manufacturers to start up and, and grow mm-hmm. yeah because when you started at bam they you couldn't even go to a tap room and buy a pint of beer that's correct we didn't and, have farm breweries yeah. either you couldn't self-distribute couldn't go to farmers markets uh the list goes on mm-hmm. it, you mentioned ip as well so is that one of like the biggest issues in the industry um I mentioned it because it was kind of the topic of discussion. I was just wanted to clarify your question. Uh, but I do think that it is a, uh, an ongoing challenge, uh, and it has been an issue for quite some time. Uh, it's also uh, craft beer is a unique community of folks, not just uh, the brewers and manufacturers themselves, uh, but the craft beer drinker and enthusiast uh, feels a right and a part of being a member of that community. And so a lot of times these IP issues and discussions come into the public forum uh, and, and almost so- social injustice warriors. Yeah, absolutely. Take up their pitchforks and yeah, absolutely. And almost just as important as the legal aspects of protecting yourself. There's also the marketing and advertising kind of public forum conversation about how we go about protecting our rights while also not appearing to be pardon my language assholes. <laughs> and, at, I th- and I think part of the, like one of the unfortunate parts for the the brewery who feels they've been infringed on and is going after someone who almost always is some small startup brewery so everyone they have the puppy dog eyes everyone feels at least horrible play that role. yeah and they feel <laughs> I didn't never I right. never heard of them <laughs> and but I mean part of holding a trademark is you have to defend it or correct. you lose it correct that's and, that's correct, yeah, um, especially if you know about it, um, then there can be an acquiescence of rights. Um, and so certainly once you, now, you know, it can get a little tricky because there's a matter of if you know there's actual confusion or not. You know, sometimes if you know um, that there's a potentially conflicting mark out there, but there's been no actual confusion, then, you know, as long as you have an understanding between the parties that, hey, once there is actual confusion, we see some evidence of this, then, you know, we're going to um, stop it and do something about it. You know, you can you can potentially get around it that way. But you really should be proactive with um, protecting your rights, especially if you have a registered trademark, um, because there is a risk of losing it. Mm-hmm. Now, th- you, you had said that the part about confusion, like a big thing in craft beer is beers named sometimes exactly the same as another product such as one that pops in my mind is a cereal the Mm -hmm. local brewery did that or like a twist on some other if it if it's not in the beer genre is that still a problem or 
it like if it's a trademark of a very large company that makes cereal and you have a beer that you name exactly the same mm-hmm. is is that are you at risk from that large company coming after you there are a couple different issues um but largely what trademark is about is potential consumer confusion it's really there to protect the consumers and make sure the consumers when they go buy a product they know it's from producer a and they're going to get certain qualities and characteristics be because of that as opposed to producer b um so if uh, there's different classes of goods or services there's 40 some on the federal level there's 40 some classes of goods and services and so typically if you aren't in the same class you're often safe but if they're related classes and if there's a chance that you're going to be in similar trade channels and and similar consumers are going to see both products, then you're still in trouble, potentially. So if it's still a food product, yeah, then say. both could end up in a grocery store. Beer is food, right? No. <laughs> so a prime example comes to mind for a few years back. Uh, it's probably been 10 years now, but Rock Art Brewery in Vermont had a, I believe, a double IPA called Monster, or Vermonster. That was one of the, yeah. Yeah, And um, Monster Energy Drink came after them, and it was uh, one of those whole public forum as well as legal battles that went on. I think that Monster Energy Drink ended up relenting uh, and allowing the rights for the alcohol beverage uh, to be retained in potentially just Vermont or something. You Mm -hmm. may have better information Mm -hmm. on this. So. To get back to, I think, what your original question was, there is that threat of the large looming corporation Monster Energy drink coming in on the small purveyor of goods, uh, uh, Rock Art Brewing, uh, and, and it becoming a, a legal battle that goes forth from there. Yeah, and the other branch of that, too, is that if you're dealing with a famous mark, then all bets are off. So if you name your beer Disney Beer, you're probably going to be in trouble. You put Mickey Mouse right <laughs> on that label, you're going to be in trouble either way. Don't so. use that damn font. <laughs> <laughs> now, what what if that is your name, though? It, does that still make it completely off limits? Like, say my last name's Disney, and I'm like, I want to open Disney Brewery. That's my name. Is it, Are there any provisions in the law for that, or because you happen to have a famous last name, you're never going to own a business with using it? You run into different trademark issues there using just your last name um, because they don't want people protecting common last names basically mm-hmm. or else no one else can use them so you deal with a whole different issue there um, but yeah I, regardless of whether your last name is Disney or not I would not use Disney in the mouse <laughs> 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 that's my my advice to you my free advice to you today what what is the responsibility of a new brewery you know so you open a brewery you have a unique name for your brewery and then you're putting out like 10 12 beers a year and there's only so many things you can come up with to name your pale ale like do you have to know for certain that no other small brewery anywhere in the country is naming their pale ale that same thing or so one of the the first things that every business should do not just breweries is do a trademark clearance search when they're getting into business and many many businesses do not um, the problem is, is that, you know, you start up with a certain name and you do a large branding campaign around and you get all your trade dress together and not, not six months down the road, but three years down the road when you've established all the goodwill in this name and this look and everything, then you get the cease and desist letter. Um, so it's the same thing with breweries and your beer brands and everything. With Trademark, the name of the game is to be unique. The more unique the name, the better. So, for example, Exxon with gas. 
basically exon is you know it's a made-up word so the chances that someone is going to also use exon with gas without just completely ripping it off are slim to none right so um, what you want to try to do is use basically they call them fanciful fanciful terms or mm -hmm. arbitrary mm -hmm. terms um, use fanciful terms make up names do whatever you have to do to create that that branding and that's actually gonna it's not only gonna help the consumers but it's gonna help you um, it's gonna create that distinctiveness and for the consumers it's cool because you get to drink this incredibly uniquely named beer and tell all your friends about it mm -hmm. and um, so what should uh, say a, a brewery does find themselves on the receiving end of a cease and desist what is the first thing they should do the first thing that you do is do a little research and make sure that you're on the um the you know either the good side or the bad side of it trademark really comes down to priority of use so you acquire trademark rights immediately once you start using a certain mark in commerce they're common law rights they're not the federal rights with the r and the circle and the whole thing and statutory damages but you do have some rights that you acquire um so it comes down to who is using that in the marketplace first so i've had several um clients come in to me and they're you know mad as hell and they say hey x y and z is is using my mark and we need to send them a cease and desist letter and shut them down immediately. The first thing I do is do a little research to see who is using the mark first. And, you know, for whatever reason, it's like seven times out of ten, <laughs> the client that's come to me is on the, the bad side mm -hmm. of, of the issue. And then we have a whole other issue with do we have to rebrand at this point or, or, you know, what measures do we have to take? So the first thing to do is determine who is using the mark first. I get in age of the internet that's got to be it's got to make it much a easier, lot to, easier do. to figure out than it would have been 20 years ago to that's right that's right it's it's much easier to do now and then once you figure out okay well you know we were there first or they were there first then you have to start digging into a little bit okay so what exactly do you offer under this mark is it in any way different from what the the other guy offers are the consumers going to be the same or the you know, there's a, a factor of sof uh, consumer sophistication. Are the consumers going to be sophisticated to know that one brand is different than the other brand? So there's a whole analysis that goes on with several factors, and, and then you just start working your way through the factors. And what other areas do you think your practice is going to move into? I mean, we talk a lot about how fast this industry is growing in Maryland and in Frederick in particular. Well, you know, I work with Miles and Stockbridge is a large law firm. We have uh, 200 plus attorneys, I think, uh, coming up to 300. So we we're in many different areas of law right now. Um, I don't know, you know, working with um, craft breweries, uh, you may get into non-alcoholic um, uh, brews. Mm -hmm. um, so you may get into that angle. Like I say, I work with a lot of service providers. So um, one of the clients I work with now is going to be um, a delivery service for craft breweries. So you get a lot of kind of spin-off new service provider businesses, which is also great for the economy, and um, it serves you know the businesses that are already in place. So mm -hmm. I think that's going to be great. So we we talked about that a little bit beforehand, and JT you expressed that you don't you don't think the uh, the wholesale lobby is going to be very happy about this new business model popping up if i had to place a bet on <laughs> one side of the table or not i would think the maryland beer wholesalers association would probably take issue with the business plan that 
So I was talking about earlier. So which as is you, not to say that they shouldn't be doing it. I think it's wonderful, but I think they should also probably be prepared to enjoy themselves in Annapolis a little bit. <laughs> <clears throat> which I, in, in general, I, what I find infuriating with, so we'll, we'll talk about 1283 for a little bit, in in that legislation and basically alcohol legislation and all together is like the right now the biggest argument seems to be that breweries are stepping on this other business that's already existed i guess i just don't understand why it's the government's job to protect someone's business model and there are a lot of businesses that through the changing of times suffer and I, I work for a business that has suffered because of the changing trends in the way people sure. behave, but the government isn't protecting us. Mm-hmm. So why I, I, I so I, I, what I, so that leads me to ask, do you think that those types of things like these new, even more business models cropping up that are going to anger these powerful lobbies, is that going to hurt even further the, the legal opinion or the legislation towards the craft beer industry. So, cause now there's yet another thing for the established powerful lobby to rally against. I'm going to let you take this answer. All right. <laughs> so, uh, there's a lot of ways to answer that question. Um, I, I think that, uh, first and foremost, um, historically speaking, power lines had been drawn in Annapolis. Uh, brewers uh, historically were not uh, very organized uh, and weren't really even a part of the conversation by and large to the most part. And so um, that coupled with the historic landscape of kind of the exact opposite of what we're seeing in the market now where we have a proliferation of independent craft brewers and consolidation within the wholesale tier of the beer industry, um, it's the when those laws and bills were originally uh, passed and written and signed, um, it was the exact opposite. Uh, there was a lot of consolidation in the beer world, and there were a lot of small mom-and-pop wholesalers uh, out in the marketplace. And so a lot of the laws that uh, we had to interact with were written uh, from a vantage point to protect the mom-and-pop small independent wholesaler uh, from the large conglomerate uh, brewer. Uh, and now the market is pretty much, by and large, the exact opposite, uh, Maryland and here uh, across the country. And so um, I think we're all having to collectively uh, react to those things and position ourselves going forward. And now the brewers, uh, rightfully so, have organized themselves over the last five years. And, and not to say that there weren't positive things happening before, uh, but they were happening on a very individualized basis, by and large. Um, you know, case in point, though, uh, the Brewers Association of Maryland was actually formed in 1996, which, uh, looking back, uh, was, was a huge uh, founding moment. When you look at across the other states uh, in the East Coast and throughout the Midwest and all the way out to the West, 1996 is a relatively early year for a state guild to be founded for a Brewers yeah. Association. Um, it was always interesting going to national meetings and, and letting people, that, that coming up in the course of a conversation, they're just like, that's been around since 96. <laughs> and that was the foresight of uh, a few notable people that are still involved in the uh, industry, the segment. Um, but going forward, I think that it's important for um, brewers to not only remain organized, but smart in their moves 
uh, in Annapolis, uh, in, in the nation's capital, as well as state houses across the country. Um, the idea, in my personal opinion, the idea of fighting the wholesaler and retailer associations, which historically are very well-funded and very powerful groups, uh, in the same manner uh, in which they've approached the argument uh, doesn't make any sense uh, to me. Uh, craft brewers, by and large, uh, exist uh, because of the hand sale. Uh, they go out and sample their product and tell people their story. And I think that's exactly what they should be doing in Annapolis, and that's exactly what they should be doing in D.C. and state houses across the country rather than pardon me, but lawyering up and spending, trying to outspend uh, wholesaler associations that frankly are, are, are hiring the most expensive lobbyists in the state that are in Annapolis seven days a week and are going out to dinner with the Speaker uh, and the President of the Senate and the Governor and, and they're on a first name uh, basis. Like you just, you're not going to equal that. You have a story uh, and a point in the market where you can tell that story as well as uh, the overwhelming support of the public and to uh, rodeo all of that together and take that to Annapolis, I think, is what they need to be doing rather than um, what we saw a little bit this year uh, that just didn't kind of had head-scratching moments for me this year in Annapolis. Which I, one I, you? I will say, to be fair, though, <coughs> the attorneys who align themselves with the brewers and individual breweries um, as lobbyists in Annapolis, also are among the highest paid. It, it was the biggest, one of the biggest issues in Annapolis this year. Just sure. to throw it out there, but that enlarges in large part is my is my point. Right, you're that, saying that not to do that in future years, but yeah, remain this in, past remain year. independent and go and extend the hand sale to Annapolis. Tell your story. And also because you're going to need your legal budget for a lot of the other issues that (laughs) you've talked about. (laughs) Exactly. When when there's a good angle to take it this way without spending that budget. Exactly. Well, and and I will say that the the comptroller, Maryland comptroller, has done a great job as an advocate for the breweries too. Um, It seems to me, I I don't know all the, the inside particulars, but it seems to me like the administration in place in Maryland right now um, is for the craft breweries and doing a really great job trying to promote that. I think they see that it's a really valuable part of the Maryland economy. It's a growing part of the Maryland economy, and and uh, helping this industry is is fantastic. Sure. And I was I I love the way you explained it. I'd never heard it explained that way, like the flipping of the market forces. Oh, from the wholesalers it, and yeah, that, and that and that the that makes a lot of sense of why the laws were made at that time. But now, because of how everything's flip-flop, they, they're actually doing the exact opposite of what they were intended to do to in degree. the beginning. Mm-hmm. Is that now you have all these tiny breweries cropping up, but the brewer, the large breweries that we were trying to protect the small uh, distributors from are now all owned by, well, not all, but a lot of them are owned by those large breweries that needed to be protect people needed protection from but to your point chris maybe the whole thing shouldn't have been legislated maybe it shouldn't you know the place for it is not in statutes um you know the the relationship between business parties um, maybe should be left between the business parties to figure out there's a much more flexible way to deal with it over time as leverages shift and and things like that and you know, maybe let the businesses um figure it out for themselves yeah like there well, aren't any laws that dictate um how someone who produces uh, deli meat has to sell through a distributor to a whole. 
But there is right, also a reason that alcohol is Article 2B of the Maryland Statutory. I was statutory going code. to point this out. <laughs> Deli meat was never prohibited for right. sale in the entire United States. So, I mean, to the to the issue of everyone having to come to the table, the, the wholesalers, the distributors, the manufacturers, everyone at the same time, that's just because of the way Maryland's Article 2B is written. <laughs> and it's, you know, we've year by year, bill by bill, hundreds of thousands of bills probably have rolled back prohibition one little tiny nuance at a time. So when you do get into like, you know, the part of Article 2B that discusses breweries, it does discuss manufacturers, distributors, um, wholesalers, and that's why you have all of these various forces on one bill. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, uh, Miles and Stockbridge is just a member of the Brewers Association of Maryland, or do you also are, represent them? No, 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 no. We're, we're a member. Mm-hmm. So is uh, it if they were a client, I couldn't tell you anyway. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so they're uh, associate members, so as, as a way for you to market and help uh, brewers with their issues. Yeah, I mean, you know, we get some exposure by being a part of the association, but really why we're there is because we see this as a valuable part of the Maryland economy. And especially for me as an attorney in the Frederick office, I mean, it's in, it's been incredible for the Frederick economy. So, um, you know, we have particular knowledge, especially in the areas of business IP and land use and zoning and all these different things that affect the breweries. We think we can um, help the breweries as they start up by being, you know, a partner with BAM and, and um you know, we've put on seminars throughout the year. We've done various speaking engagements um, to help educate the members of BAM. Um, you know, so that's that's really our mission there. And Thanks you guys were one in your local brewers guild. What's that? Thank you for supporting your local sure, brewers guild. Yeah. And you were one of the um, presenting sponsors for the Maryland Craft Beer Festival. That's right? correct. Yep. Yep. We've um, we've tried to um, sponsor what we can out there and help the organization. And, and, you know, we've funded some lunches at some of the programs and things like that. And, you know, um, whatever we can do to promote, um, this industry in Maryland and, and BAM itself, uh, is, is our mission. So, so we focused a lot on IP. What is, if someone's sitting there like thinking about opening a brewery, what is the one other area that you would say you better make sure you have this worked out before you there are so many obviously you know where the brewery is different from any other startup is on all the regulatory end of it so Mm -hmm. your your federal licenses your state licenses figuring out what class of brewery you want to be in you know how are you going to get the product out there can you get the product out there yourself through self-distribution all these other things you know that's that's a whole other kind of knot to try to untie so IP protection, the regulation is very important. Protecting yourself through, uh, just like any other business startup, protecting yourself through the correct business entity is vital. Um, typically, you don't want to be operating as like a sole proprietorship or a partnership because, you know, you have business liabilities, your, your personal assets are exposed. So you want to make sure you get into the right limited liability entity, typically speaking. Um, you have to make sure that you're well-funded. You don't want to go in with half the, the financial resources that you really need, get halfway through, get a couple tanks, and realize uh, we don't have enough money to go the rest of the way and actually produce the beer. There's employment issues. There's leasing issues. You know, Do I want to buy a facility? Do I want to rent a facility? Is it zoned properly is a mm-hmm. huge one because it has to, the facility you either rent or buy has to be properly zoned or you can't, you know, brew beer there to begin with. So 
there's there's so many different things to think about. Um, you know, it's it's a challenging business to get into, a very rewarding business to get into. Um, so, you know, bless those who have done it successfully. It's. I think you had some other questions you had asked before we started. <laughs> so much pressure. <laughs> um, I can't remember any of them. Well, do you guys do you guys have a favorite beer? Yeah. I'll go with the real softball. Favorite beer. Um, <laughs> it's funny. Since I've left the Brewers Association of Maryland, uh, I was able to kind of step back from the beer world and enjoy it as a recreation that I think the vast majority of 99% of the rest of the public do. So I've been able to enjoy that a tremendous amount. As far as a specific favorite beer, I don't know if uh, I can name just one. However, uh, Attaboy's uh, Creek Life here in Maryland, or here in Frederick, excuse me, uh, has been a phenomenal little pale ale, and I think it's the prime illustration of that uh, change to the Class 5 production brewery business plan of making a beer uh, fresh and selling it directly across the counter to an end consumer and fan and aficionado. Uh, and so having this delicious pale ale that's perfectly well-crafted, that doesn't have to be overhopped and can just be an enjoyable beer, drank fresh right out of a bright tank, to me, I think, is a, is a phenomenal little illustration of where uh, the segment of craft beer is in, uh, here locally uh, mm-hmm. for my enjoyment. <laughs> Which version, though? Well, and that's the thing as well. It's this wonderful little chassis of a beer that they've been able to continually have. Because they're on their, their third version where they, yeah. uh, those of you that don't know that they have the Creek Life series where right. each one has a different, it's not a single hop, but the marquee hop that's right. used as the backbone for the beer. Hmm. So I, I don't know if I can name exactly one right now, but I've been enjoying all of those and, and, and just what a, the, the recipe itself and the base beer and the simplicity and enjoyment and freshness of it. Uh, and each one of them, uh, I make sure to get down there as soon as I can so I can have one and enjoy it with my friends. So among your clients, do you have a favorite beer? I was just going to say, I, I can't pick one, but if, if one of my clients is brewing it, that's that's my favorite. So <laughs> I have to be uh, a di- diplomat there on that one. So. All right, we'll just name five that could be in any order of your top 100. <laughs> um, so if you haven't been listed, you could be his favorite. It's just not on this particular list. Uh, w- one of my favorites. I actually do like um, a lot of the, the Flying Dog products. Um, the truth uh, is one of my favorites. It's Double delicious. Dog IPA, one of my favorites. But um, you know, there are so many out there. And then, you know, one of the benefits of uh, being in this business is sometimes your clients bring you some homebrew or some stuff that they make specially, and mm-hmm. um, you know, that's a real treat as well. So that's awesome. What's your favorite? No, I just I dream up things that I wish people <laughs> made. Like, well, give us an idea. I yeah, just, I want well, like a pale ale with some cherries in it or something. Like, all right. How like can she protect our cherry? A chocolate chipotle <laughs> stout, or you know, that's been made. Oh, well, tell me more later after okay. this. <laughs> <laughs> I love Attaboy Galaxy Made. That's mm-hmm. one, of mm-hmm. and Poor Righteous, or is it on this side? That's it's on one of this. Side. This one. <laughs> There are, as well. there are also some, um, my wife loves the ones that have a little grapefruit twist in them and, yeah. and um, some fruit in them. And those are those are pretty good, too, especially on a hot summer day. Really refreshing. So mm-hmm. that's a good part about being in the business is tasting the product. Yeah. Right, cool. And uh, thank you guys very much. Um, sure. Pleasure being here. And thanks for JT, thank you. let's talk about a little bit of what you're doing now. Tell people yeah, what you're so, up to now. Uh, 
You've abandoned the beer industry. <laughs> I wouldn't say I abandoned. <laughs> well, I like to, I like to from, think you I went have. from one side to the other. You're you enjoy it now and yes, of I work can, I can within it. Recreate with it, uh, which is enjoyable. Absolutely. Uh, so. Um, I was with the Brewers Association of Maryland for three years after the, I guess, four years that I was at uh, Flying Dog. And at that point, um, had accomplished uh, the vast majority of the goals that I set out for myself at both of those places. Uh, and it was uh, time for me to move on as I saw it. And I also uh, met and fell in love with my wife, Lauren Olson. And uh, at that point, uh, and still to this day, she was a, a very successful real estate agent. And uh, I really enjoyed seeing her business plan and the care uh, that she was doing and taking care of her clients and everything that she was doing for them. Uh, and that really spoke to me. Uh, and so as I was winding things down at the Brewers Association of Maryland, I pitched to her eight to 15 times the idea <laughs> of coming into business with her. And I think like right by the 34th time that I pitched it to her, she actually kind of started to listen. And that was about just to shut you up, or she <laughs> thought it was a good idea. I think she was starting to think that maybe it was a good idea, or at least listen to me because she knew I wasn't going to stop talking about it. Um, That's usually how I wear people down. <laughs> Ambition is good in job interviews. Yeah, absolutely, right? I'm really excited. And so, about a year and a half ago now, at this point, uh, I joined her in her business, and we started Olson Smith and Co., which is a real estate team here in Frederick with Remax Results. Uh, and I'm helping people buy and sell their homes, and I really, really enjoy it. I can use my uh, legal uh, education and background uh, to make sure that they're taken care of and, and protected, uh, while also um, really helping people navigate the waters of buying and or selling their home. Uh, and there's a tremendous amount of passion that comes through for me in that, and I, I really enjoy it. So that is what I'm up to these days. Cool. And so if there's a aspiring brewery owner uh, right now listening or a current brewery owner who isn't already your uh, client who's mm -hmm. found themselves in some sort of trouble, how should they get in touch with you? <laughs> um, well, I can be found on the Miles and Stockbridge website. Uh, all my contact information is there. Uh, email or phone is, is fine. And, Which um, really conveniently for you, you were the first one listed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> AB, it served me well all the way through life. Um, so, and, and usually what I do is, um, you know, I don't like to pressure clients or anything like that. So a new client comes in and we'll sit down for, you know, just a casual consultation. And we go through some of the things that are on the top of their mind, some issues that they're concerned about, maybe some issues that they haven't even, um, you know, identified for themselves. And I help them kind of prioritize the importance of, of those issues. And, you know, we, we try to work within the budget and be cost effective for them. And, you know, I work with a lot of startups and small businesses. So I understand the importance of budget and staying within that budget. And, you know, at the end of the day, what I want to do is help protect small businesses and emerging businesses, um, especially in the craft brew industry, because it is so important to our economy. And um, that's what I set out to do every day. And uh, should they bring beer with them? Of course. It always <laughs> helps. <laughs> I, well, I want to thank you guys so much for coming in. My pleasure. Uh, thank you for having us. Giving us a lot of knowledge about IP and JT, especially for explaining the current legal situation in a way that completely made sense. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm happy to put things in historic context. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you. The Uncapped Podcast is produced by Graham Cohen and me, Chris Sands. Be sure to like us on Facebook, and if you've enjoyed these podcasts, please leave us a review on Google Play or the iTunes Store. 
A special thanks to Double Motorcycle for providing our theme music. Thanks for listening.